America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. Leslie wasn't a good soldier. She was a great soldier. Leslie excelled, earning accolades and achievements, including the Distinguished Honor Graduate in basic training, including junior leader of that cycle. And while training for combat medic, she also received Honor Graduate and junior leader of the cycle. Leslie also earned Soldier of the Year at the brigade level and earned a spot on the Army 10-miler team. Leslie was a lifer. The Army was her dream career, but that all changed. After Leslie returned home from a deployment in Kuwait and Iraq, she was thrown into the deep abyss of PTS. The things that she had seen, the experiences that Leslie had, she could no longer repress, and she was driven to the brink of suicide. But this is not a story of sadness or grief. This is a story of resiliency. After therapy and her love of mountain biking, Leslie has learned to live with her PTS. Does she still have bad days? Absolutely. But they are overshadowed by the great days. Leslie is a wife, a mother, an author of multiple children's books, including when Mom Deploys and When Dad Deploys, and George W. Bush is a personal friend. Leslie and I recorded this episode on a particularly hard week. This was the week that the U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan. And like many veterans, Leslie was struggling to understand the repercussions, and she felt a great sadness. She was going off sleepless nights. Leslie's emotions were raw, and yet she still agreed to do this podcast episode. Her story is vitally important. This is Leslie's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Leslie Zimmerman. Leslie, hello. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm good. Before we start with your story, I want to do a little game here to kind of just get us into things and make us relax a little bit. This is going to be like um, that this or that. Okay. Let's just kind of get us in the flow. Hamburger or pizza? Oh, pizza. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Hawaii or France? Oh, I've never been to either, but I would think maybe Hawaii. I'm a mountain biker, so Hawaii's got some good trails. Okay. Die Hard, Christmas movie or no? Uh, Christmas movie. <laughs> okay. DC or Marvel? Oh, my friend uh, would totally kill me for this one, but uh, DC. Oh, DC. Yuck. <laughs> I disagree with you on that one, but that's Okay. And how about this one, Army or Marine? Oh, that's easy. Duh, Army. 
unless you ask uh, my sister or my brother, then they they'd go with Marine. Can it, I just go right in the middle? Yes, it's so funny because with this podcast, I have realized that there is a huge rivalry between Army and Marines. Because Marines um, eat crayons. <laughs> I've never even heard of that until a few episodes ago with one of my guests. I hope this doesn't get into uh, family quarrels around Thanksgiving or Christmas. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again so much for being a part of this podcast. I'm hoping we can start at the beginning and maybe share with us a little bit about how you grew up and why you wanted to join the military. Should we start like at birth? That's the very beginning. Let's start at birth. Well, we were in the hospital. I don't remember much. We were screaming. No, um, you saw this bright light. Yes, there was a bright light. Go towards the light. I grew up in Utah. I have six brothers and sisters, so I'm number six of seven. Four sisters and two brothers. I kind of grew up as a tomboy because my two brothers are just older than me. I became their little tag along. And I kind of was a tomboy and I was always really interested in sports and being outside. And my sister, actually, she was the first one in our family to join the military. She went in right after high school. I think she did the pre-deployment or what do they call that? Where they join when they're in high school. Right. I know what you're talking about. I don't know what it's called. So she joined while she was in her senior year. I was able to go out and shoot with her when she was on the Marine Corps high power rifle team. I went out and lived with her and I'd shoot with her in the summers and go to Camp Perry, Ohio, where they have the national championships. And I saw all the military out there shooting. And I just thought that was the coolest thing to be involved in something bigger in a group bigger than just you and have common goal, common purpose. And so ever since then, I had started thinking about the military and Julia said not to go in the Marines. <laughs> I think she wanted that title for herself. She, I think that's what it was, is that she just wanted to be the only Marine <laughs> in the family, which didn't work out because after I joined the army, my older brother, Edward went into the Marine Corps. So now we've got two Marines. Did you have a family history of this whatsoever? No, actually my dad, he was drafted and he had a, a bullet in his foot from a kid, an accident when he was a kid up in Montana and the doctor had been drunk. And so he didn't take out the bullet. And so he just sewed it up. And when he was about to go through, he went through the medical and the doctor said, is there a bullet in your foot? And he said, yeah, it probably saved his life because he didn't end up going to Vietnam. But both of my grandfathers served. Um, I have many uncles and aunts and cousins who have served in the military. Now I will have Julia on my podcast. She's going to come on a few episodes before you. I haven't released hers yet. How are you as a shooter? I'm not better than her. So I'm good though. I shot on the Utah team and I shot on the Virginia team for a little bit. I think that I'm good, but I had a really good coach. Julia was my coach and it's hard to not be good when you have a good coach telling you, reading the wind for you and giving you pointers on how to be better, but I'm a good shot. Was this a hobby in the family before? Yeah. My dad would take us to this gun range in Springville. It's just in the bottom of this little community center, which I think is funny. And we'd just shoot uh, 22s 
and I fell in love with it there. Not as much as Julia, though. She had a different love for shooting. Were you as much of a natural as she was? She, uh, she told me that the first time she shot, she had such a small grouping that whoever was there told your dad, you've got to get her going in some competitions here. I'm not as good as she is. <laughs> I didn't have any anyone scoping me out to put me on any teams or say that I was like excellent, but I did really well. Once you joined the military, where did it take you? Where did you do your basic? So basic training was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and it was a co-ed. So it was male and female. And I got there and I just loved it. I loved it. It was the structure that I wanted and the push the challenge it was every day was different and it was a challenge and but it was a good challenge and it taught me to be stronger and I found through basic training that not only was I good at it but I loved it and I felt like at this point I would do this forever like this is fun how Um, old were you then when you got there I was 18 that's so young had you been away from home before Um, Well, I lived with my sister for a while while I was shooting out in North Carolina and Virginia. So for a little bit, for months, like when you're 18, you don't feel young. Like it doesn't feel young at 18. You feel like you're old and you know everything. And so at that time, I didn't feel young. But looking at 18-year-olds going into the military now, I think, oh, man, they're so young, you know, because I'm old plus 20 years. Well, my daughter is turning 18 here in September and I can't even imagine her going into the military. I think it takes a different, does it take a different type of person to join the military? I think you have to have a little bit of (laughs) self-hatred. That stands to reason. (laughs) No, I think it does. I think it takes someone who has to be willing to give of themselves and because it's not just a job. It's not something that you can just go home from. And it's like a police officer. It's you're always on call. It's always your job. You're always a policeman. Did you find any part of basic training so difficult that you thought, why did I do this? Or did you enjoy all of it? Oh, I loved all of it. Oh my gosh. I actually graduated as the distinguished honor graduate, which I didn't even know was a thing, but I was like, when I got it, I was like, yeah, that's cool. I was also junior leader of the cycle and I just really excelled. The only thing that I'd say that I struggled with was land navigation. I'm not the greatest at that, but I, of course, passed, but it's not my favorite. I'm grateful for GPS because you know what? I could never figure out a map. If my husband and I were in a car going somewhere and we had no idea and I was the navigator, yeah. We had to pull over multiple times where he would have to read the map himself. <laughs> Gotta love Google. I know. Google where did you go after basic? After basic, I went to AIT advanced individual training at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And that was to be a combat medic. And that again, I did really well. I didn't have any former medical training before this point. They train you as you go. And I ended up being the honor grad and junior leader of the cycle again. And it was just another thing that I grabbed onto and was able to excel at. And I loved being a leader. People would always try and hide in the back so they didn't get in trouble or they didn't get noticed, but I didn't mind carrying the guide on and I didn't mind being the leader of the group. 
How did you gravitate that way? So actually, when I signed up to go into the army, I signed on as a military police officer, but I went snowboarding before my report date to basic training and I broke my collarbone. So they didn't have the same date and I didn't want to wait too long. So they gave me an option of other things that I had tested into and I chose a medic, which changed the course of not only my military career, but afterwards and what I did in my civilian job and how I understood things. So it worked out to be really good for me that I broke my collarbone. After you're done with the training, where does your next step in the military take you? I actually, when I was in AIT, the last day that we tested, we tested to be, we did our national registry for EMT basic. And we came into this, this room at the end and everyone was watching TV, which was weird because we don't watch TV in training and they had the news on and it was nine 11. Mm. And so we had just finished becoming army medics and the drill instructor comes in and says, look, this is real. Some of you guys are going to be deployed. And then that night we were standing guard on our building, you know, so instantly it went from being this training situation to something that was real life. And then a week later, I found out I was going to South Korea for a year. And I was stationed at Camp Carroll, Korea, in a little military police unit, which I thought was kind of ironic, seeing as I was supposed to be an MP. And I spent a year there. I did lots of soldier boards. Those are the boards that you go to. And you have to memorize all of these military things. And they ask you questions and you repeat it back. And so I ended up being soldier of the year there at the brigade level. Again, it just was something that I fell into. Like, it was just easy for me. I think you're an overachiever. I am. (laughs) I am. It's such a problem. I wish I could say the same thing for myself. (laughs) It depends on what it is, though. If it's something that I really love, I will go and get it. And I'll do 120%. If it's something I don't like that I'm not interested in. Yeah. Nah, I don't want to do it. <laughs> you must love the military because so far it seems like you're an overachiever in every facet. I tried to be, but it, you know, it gets a little much when you're always trying to be the best or trying to like do 120%. Did you feel like you had to be the best? No, I, not for anyone else. I wasn't doing any of it for anyone else. It was a sense of gratification, a sense of um, accomplishment for myself. And it was like something that I could see that was like, I would meet milestones or reach a milestone and have that feeling of, oh, okay, like I did a good job. And that was another thing that I loved about the military is there's always something that you can know or learn or get better at and progress, whether it's in rank or knowledge or achievements or whatever. After you spent that year in South Korea, where did you head off to? Well, they actually extended my year because I made it on the Army 10-miler team. And they wanted to keep me there long enough to send me to, to the race in D.C. So I spent, I think, another month and a half, two months there, longer than I should have. But that was fun. Got to go to D.C. and run a race and did well at that. I went to El Paso, Texas after that. 
and I was stationed with an air defense artillery unit, again, as a medic. And where do you go after that? Well, that was my last permanent duty station. Okay. We were deployed to Kuwait in 2003. And then from there, we went into Iraq uh, the day that the war started. So as you're being deployed to Kuwait, you are how old? 19 and a half, 20. 20? You're really young. What is that like? Or do you even comprehend that going to somewhere completely foreign, almost like a different planet, I would think, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like because you're surrounded by your unit and you still have that, we were on a military post. It didn't have that otherworldly feel. Like I didn't feel like, yeah, we were in the desert and, and things were different, but it wasn't too different in the people that were around me. Were you nervous at all going there? No, you know, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't nervous until one night I just showered and we were living in these big, huge tents where everyone, your cot is right next to the next cot. And I was walking back from the shower, put my bag down, and then I hear someone screaming for a medic. And of course, that's me, and you're trained to go. So I grabbed my medical bag, and in my flip-flops and my shorts, ran and found this, this soldier who'd been shot in the chest. And at the time, it wasn't determined whether he had shot himself or had been an accidental discharge, but... At that moment, when I was taking care of him, it was the, okay, like, this is real. Like, up until that point, the medical training was just kind of scenarios, and it was nothing real. Like, I'd taken care of simple wounds in, in Korea and basic stuff like that, but nothing that was life-threatening like that. So that's the point when it became real for me. And was that your first traumatic injury then that you had to deal with? Yeah. And did it take you aback? Were you able to stay calm? No, you know, I was able to stay very calm. I think that's one of my superpowers, that and overachieving. I wish I had both of those superpowers. <laughs> no, the thing is, I'm able to just stay really calm in the moment and take charge and, and fix things, you know, and, and be the strong one. But later on, that came back to bite me in the, in the butt because I, you know, always been the strong one and I took care of things and I took charge. But when you do that, you suppress everything else, which is really good in situations like that, because then you're calm and focused and you can maintain that control over the situation. But I just kind of stacked all those things inside and never really dealt with them. A lot of the vets that I have spoken to, they talk about how that's almost part of the training because you don't have time to deal with the emotional baggage. You can't. You need to handle the task that's in front of you. Oh, yeah. Because if you're trying to deal with that emotional stuff, you can't handle what is there for you, the situation. And, and it all gets smushed down because it's always going to one after the other. And then, like you said, it catches up to you. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what soldiers do. We're trained to fight. We're trained to do our job. We're not trained to sit and think about how we feel, which is a good thing. 
but it's a bad thing when it comes back and you have quiet moments and these things all are there. How long did you stay in Kuwait then before you went to Iraq? I believe it was a month. month and a so half. not very long. No. And you were in Iraq. Was it different when you went to Iraq? Did you sense the difference? It was different in that like we were in MOP4 mission oriented protective posture. It's, you know, the gas mask and the suit and the gloves and the boots and it's 130 degrees. I hate the heat so much. It was very hot. No, it was definitely, um, definitely different once we crossed the border. And there were a lot of things that, that happened that don't really enjoy talking about. And I don't go out of my way to talk about, but it was, it was hard. Did you get to interact much with the Iraqi people? I, there was one family that we really got to know. My lieutenant, he was a special forces ranger. He was the battalion surgeon and he had like special liberties. The command really trusted him. So we would go off post and we met this family and we would bring them food and water and he would give them medical care. And so there was just one, one family that we really got to interact with. Did you get the sense then it sounds that they were happy to have you there? Well, there were the people that were the farmers and, and the people that were good, wholesome. They wanted the best for their families. They really loved that we were there. But I think that there were some people that didn't. And those were those who were, they had a different belief system. And, and it was all about what they saw we were doing. Some saw us coming in and liberating them and helping them make a better life for their families. And some saw the opposite, that we were coming in and telling them what to do and taking away what they had created. So I think that there's two sides of that coin. There's two groups of people. What was your role there in Iraq? I was a medic. So I, um, I was specifically attached to my lieutenant, who was a battalion surgeon. And we would go to the different batteries or different units and check up on them, do sick call, take care of any um, injured soldiers. And I'm sure a lot of that stays with you and that probably haunts you sometimes. And you repressed all that because you had to. Yeah, you can't deal with it when you're over there. How long did you stay there in Iraq? You know, it was really short comparatively to the deployments now. They can be nine months to a year or 18 months. It was only six months because that was when we thought, oh, okay, everything's better. The war's over. We did our job. And so they started sending troops home and especially our air defense unit. One of our units was ambushed, um, the 507th maintenance unit. They were ambushed on the first day of the war when we were going in. So we lost some people and that was, that was hard on everyone. You had the one deployment then only, is that right? Yeah. And then after that, the PTS became too much. So I got home. I was actually married at the time. Um, I was married while I was in Korea and also in Kuwait and Iraq. 
and I came home and I just, I, I was different. The way that I like to explain it to other people is that there's a puzzle of your life and everything around you and the people around you and you're a certain shape before you go or before, before anything bad or anything impactful happens in your life, you're a certain shape. And when those things happen to you, you slowly change your shape and you might not fit back in that same spot that you did when you left. So I came back in different shape. I was a different puzzle piece. So my husband and I actually ended up getting divorced because I just had changed so much. And I didn't know. The funny thing is that I was a medic and you'd think that I would understand the intricacies of post-traumatic stress and the reasons why and, and the symptoms, but I was living it and I still didn't know what was wrong or why. I was depressed all the time and I was just no motivation. So I went from this soldier that just like soldier of the year, NCO of the quarter, like all of these things, you know, that I'd done. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I lost my motivation, my drive. I was anxious about everything. And at this time I went through PLDC, it's primary leadership development course. And again, like I pushed through and I was on the commandant's list and leader, you know, the leadership award and did these things, but it was harder for me because I, my heart wasn't in it and I didn't know why. And after that, I went to EMT intermediate school. And this is when I really discovered that I was struggling with PTSD. Part of the school is you have to ride ambulance. So, and go on calls with them. And we would come up to situations where someone had been run over and there was a lot of blood or life and death situations. Like I could handle the ones that they're a little sick and I take them to the hospital, but the life and death situations in the moment, again, I functioned very well. You know, I did really well and I got my EMT intermediate and, and passed it. So in the moment I was fine, but then I'd come home with this excess like baggage. It was like I'd reached the top and I couldn't handle any more water in this cup. Did you know that you were struggling, but you didn't understand what it was? You didn't understand to call it PTS? Yeah, I I knew something was wrong because I wasn't the same, but I didn't know where to aim that or what to call it or what to do with it or where to put it. And I was that tough soldier, right? I wanted to be the person that didn't need any help doing anything. I wanted to do everything by myself. And that was really hard for me because I felt like, why can't I just get better? Why can't I just wake up and be okay? Like I'm stronger than this. I ran on the army 10 miler team. Like I'm tougher than this. Like this is nothing. And the more angry I got at myself, the more depressed I would get. And it was just a really bad cycle. How did you find the help that you needed? Well, um, I ended up in the hospital because I was suicidal. Oh, Leslie, that's awful. Yeah, it was a, a military hospital. And this was right after this is when I got out of the army because it just got to the point where I just couldn't function anymore. I was the, they'd made me the platoon sergeant on top of all of these other things that I was doing and going through a divorce. 
and dealing with post-traumatic stress. Um, so I ended up in the hospital and my commander came and visited me because again, they're star soldier. And here I am in the psych ward because I don't want to do it anymore. Like I just didn't want to do it. Um, and it's not that I didn't want to because I was lazy or because I got tired of it. I just couldn't mentally handle it anymore. And the stress of it and the depression and the anxiety was just too much. And he came and visited me and he said, it's okay, you know, you can walk away. But I want you to know you can come back if you ever want to come back. So I ended up leaving the army which was really bittersweet because it was something that like, I was a lifer. Like my guys used to call me master Sergeant Watson or command Sergeant major Watson, because I really loved it. And I was what they'd say squared away, but all of a sudden I didn't have that anymore. So it was a big, a big adjustment. And I had to figure out who I was from being this 18 year old high schooler to in the army deployed this rock star soldier to just not being able to handle life. I think that's one of the things that needs to be talked about is you probably felt shame when you didn't need to, but I would imagine that a lot of you who go through this, you feel shame because you're supposed to be this tough soldier. Was any of that involved? No, there's a lot of shame because I felt like I had given up on the people that I worked with the soldiers that were underneath me. Um, I had to walk away from that. Uh, there's a lot of shame in, again, not being strong enough and feeling weak because as a soldier, you're, you're supposed to be tough and you're supposed to be able to, to go out and do these things and, and not have it affect you. But obviously we know from countless studies that that just, that just isn't possible for humans to disconnect like that. We're not people who can just go out and be this one person and then not have it affect you. I've had the opportunity to speak with some incredible people like yourself, and some of them have lost legs. Um, some of them have major burns over their bodies, but it's not that that plagues them as much as the mental part of it. Yeah. It's not the legs that they've lost. It's the people that they've lost, the things that they've seen. While the outside can heal to a certain point, of course, you can't grow your legs back, but you know those wounds heal where you can wear your prosthetics and what have you, you can't see the wounds on the inside. And it's harder to heal, I think. It's harder to overcome those things. It's harder to heal. It's harder to ask for help because if I had a physical disability, I could go and say, Hey, I need this thing that will fix this with the mental condition or, you know, the, the trauma that we go through with that, the remnants of that, it's hard to say, put it into words and say, I have this thing. Can you give me this thing to fix it? Because everybody's thing is so different. Their experience is different. And so the fix for that is different for everyone. There's no one thing that will work. And it's hard to ask for that help because you don't know what help you need or where to get it or what will work. I had a friend who actually lost his leg and 
he he told me, you know, I feel bad for people who only have PTSD because they look normal. You look at me and people know that healing that I need, that, that sort of, I understand, I get it. I want to make it better. I want to help you. But with PTSD, it's something that you can't see. And so you just kind of, it's a, a thing that a lot of people deal with on their own. What help did you get to overcome it? Or I don't even know overcome. Do you learn how to live with it? I don't think that I've overcome it. This week has been, you know, with everything going on and in Afghanistan and the pictures and the videos. And I just had to turn it off. Like I couldn't watch anymore. Just the, the heartbreak and the sadness that I feel and the anxiety. You know, I don't know if anyone overcomes it. I feel like we learn to adapt and do things differently, whether that means avoiding certain things. Like I don't watch military videos. I'd like to, I mean, but I, I don't read certain things. I, I stay away from big events that I know will make me anxious. I just kind of have, have adapted my life. And I went through a lot of therapy. I was in the hospital for a while, a couple of times, you know, and I feel like there's times where I'm really good and I'm really happy and I feel calm and life is okay. And there's times where it's just not. And I've learned maybe above anything else that I just need to be okay with not being okay. On weeks like this week, and there's so much going on, how do you get through that? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Oh man, well, I'm not sleeping. (laughs) Can you ask me, let's rephrase this question. Can you ask me what I'm doing to like, not take care of myself because I've got all of the answers to that. What (laughs) are you not doing that you could do better, Leslie? (laughs) What could I do better? Like I could sleep. That's for one. No, I'm doing okay. I really, I'm in a position where I have friends and family who, who really care about me and I have things that I have to show up for. You know, I have three kids and I've got to take carpool in the morning and I have to pack their lunches and I have to help them with their homework. I coach a mountain bike team. I have to go and show up to coaching and I run a kid's mountain bike group. I have to go and make sure that that's done. So it helps to have things where I have to show up. If I didn't have that structure in my life, I feel like I'd be a little lost right now, but it helps to have a sister who deployed to Afghanistan, who I can call and say, you know what, this sucks. It really hurts to see these people hurting and not be able to do anything about it. You've gone through a lot with your military experience. Having come out of that, would you say you are a better person for it or just a different person or both? definitely different. I'd say good different. And I'd also say I'm a better person for it. I don't think that I would, I know that I wouldn't be the person that I am today without that. And I feel like struggle in life sometimes makes things brighter, sometimes makes things turn into something bigger. You know, you look at a diamond or a pearl, you know, all that pressure 
it turns it into something beautiful. And, you know, unless you stretch yourself, you never know how far you can go. So yeah, I've been stretched a little like Gumby. Remember Gumby? Yes. <laughs> of course. Yeah, Gumby. Good song. I'd sing it for you, but um, <laughs> but I feel like I am proud of who I am and I haven't I haven't let PTSD or getting out of the military really stop me from doing good. Let's talk about your friend George Bush. Oh, I love him. <laughs> How did that all come to be? Oh, he's such a great guy. He's a good friend now. In 2015, I heard about this, this, I call it like an event that the Bush Presidential Center does. It's called the W100. And you ride 100 kilometers down on George Bush's ranch in Crawford, Texas. And these trails are like, I, I mountain bike one of my favorite things to do and that's something that's helped with my post-traumatic stress to just disconnect from life for a little bit but um so I applied for this event and I got selected in 2015 and went on a ride um, on his ranch and got to know other vets so he takes about 15 16 vets during these events and these are veterans who have been who are post 9-11 and they've been injured or wounded in combat and he focuses on not only the physical wounds, but the post-traumatic stress and the, what they call the invisible wounds of war. And they get these veterans together to, to ride bikes and to heal together. And some of my best memories of the last five, six years have been with these veterans, whether it's been on the ranch or getting together after and going on bike rides in our communities or well, didn't he paint you? He did. Well, he didn't like this. That would be really weird. No, he did. I wish I had the, the photo in here. It's, I actually have, it's called a Jique. Um, it's French for squirt. So they, it's the, the highest quality reproduction print you can do. And they, they squirt the paint on. So I have one downstairs that he sent me and it's signed by him and are you in his book? I am. I'm actually on the cover. Look, you're being so like low key about this, Leslie. Like, <laughs> come on. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm on the cover, but um, that's on pretty the cover. Cool. I have red hair because I dyed it. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm a redhead anyway, but I lightened it. And the funny thing was that when I went down to the ranch for another ride after he had done the book and the painting. He's like, what'd you do to your hair? Because <laughs> he had painted it red. And it's like, you ruined it. Did you know he was going to paint your picture? No. So there are other veterans, of course, that are in this, this book. A lot of them are really good friends of mine. They did send out and say, hey, uh, President Bush has painted your portrait. Is that okay? And uh, yeah, so you... How did you feel about that? Were you shocked? Were you humbled? Were you, what were the feelings? Well, it was funny. I actually saw the portrait for the first time after. So I went down to his 70th birthday party on his ranch. And what he likes to do for his birthday is ride bikes with veterans, which I think is awesome. It just says how cool he is. He could do anything he wants, like go to Hawaii or fly to the moon now. He's got enough money to just go up there a few times. <laughs> but um, 
for his birthday, he wants to ride bikes with that. So I went down to his 70th birthday party and he pulls out his iPad and he's showing these veterans their portraits that he had painted. And so he showed me mine and it was just the coolest. Like, what can you say to that? Thoughts in my head were, it was just very surreal. The whole thing is very surreal. And you are an author as well of children's books. Was Julia kind of the idea behind that when you first started? Yeah, so I I wrote one. It's called Dream Big. It's about a turtle who dreams what he wants to be when he grows up. But the moral of the story is that his mom says that she'll love him no matter what he decides. No matter what you do, you, you have my love. So I wrote that one first and published it. And then Julia was actually the driving force, the idea behind when mom deploys and dad deploys. I didn't have kids when I deployed, but I saw her leave her two girls twice when she went to Iraq. And then again, when she went to Afghanistan and it was really hard on those girls. I actually had them live with me for a little bit. And then my other sister, Lillian, took care of them for a little bit. And, you know, without going into detail, it was just really hard on these girls. And they had to go through a lot of healing to, to heal from, from their mom. And I feel like if they had had the knowledge that, hey, mom, this is what mom's doing. And this is why. And this is where she's going. At least if they had had that conversation and a little bit more coping skills, I think kids with deploying parents they'll be better off with you know because they suffer depression and anger and they do poorly in school you know there's all these things that these kids deal with when their parents leave and I wanted to create a book that was simple enough for kids to understand but to the point in where it's not cushioning it too much so simple for them to understand and it opens that conversation between the parent and the child to talk about, Hey, this is where I'm going. And do you have any questions and talk about their fears and their worry and talk about things that they can do to pass the time or to cope while they're gone. The name of those two books are when mom deploys and when dad deploys is the second one. Can you read us a few pages out of one of those? Sure. So they're essentially the same book. But I wanted, you know, because I'm a woman, I was in the military, my sister, I didn't want it to just be, you know, when dad deploys, because moms deploy too. And um, the artwork actually, it's beautiful. Uh, it is done by my little sister. Oh, you're kidding. No. You're all overachievers, aren't you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. It has a forward in it by Dr. Lawrence Beale. He is a child psychiatrist and therapist and my uncle. So he did the forward talking about, you'll just have to read the forward because it's okay. too long. Okay. Do you want me to start from the beginning? Or? Yes, please. My mom said today that she's going away. Her unit was called Save the Day. I don't know where or for how long. All I know is that mom will be gone. She won't be here to see my games, to take me to school or play in the rain. She'll miss birthdays and important days. She'll miss my little sister's plays. I know that I might have days when I wish she hadn't gone away. I still have my friends, my family, and teachers too, who I can talk to when I'm feeling blue. 
Mom says it's okay to have fear, to miss her and wish she were here. I'm proud of my mom and I'll cheer her on, even if she's gone for so long. She won't be able to call every day, but I'm sure when she does, we'll both have a lot to say. I can draw a picture when I'm missing her most and I have something to say, I can do it in another way. I can draw a picture, send her a letter, write an email or journal to help me feel better. Even though we'll be far away, I know that we'll, we'll think of each other every day. My mom is very brave and strong. I might still get worried when she's gone. She says it's normal to feel this way and that because I'm strong, I'll be okay. Because she is strong, I can be too. While she's gone, there will be plenty to do. I'll take care of all of the things that I can. I'll help out my dad and lend him a hand. I'll finish my jobs and my schoolwork on time. There will be difficult things and mountains to climb. I'll put out a calendar to mark off the days. They'll go by much faster if I make sure to play. Aren't those illustrations adorable? Oh my gosh, yes. Love them. I'll ride my bike and go on hikes. Listen to crickets as I camp out at night. When she's gone, it's safe to say that I will change in many ways. Some ways big and some ways small, but I'll be proud of them all. Mom will change too, and that's okay. Just like me, she'll learn and grow each day. Her unit is very big. Some drive tanks and some fix, fix rigs. Her best friend Chase is in command. He gives directions, direction and lends a hand. And these soldiers right here, it was fun. I actually, on their name tapes, I put um, names of soldiers that I served with. The unit has medics to keep them safe. If someone gets hurt, they're on the case. Guards stand watch at the gate, often staying up very late. Far away in foreign lands, while moms deployed, we're both in good hands. I'm looking forward to when she goes. I'll say goodbye to her unit of heroes. And when mom comes home, I'll be there to say, I'm proud of you in every way. Oh my gosh. So that's that. <laughs> it's been a while since I actually read that book. That's so beautiful. It really is. Thank you. So I liked that, you know, it gives them a little sense of what's going on and the parent can adapt and add to it and give more information if they want. And it gives them, you know, coping skills and it teaches them that you can reach out to friends, you can do other things and you still have to show up and you still have to do your homework and you still have to help with house chores and that kind of thing. Well, I know Julia mentioned it a few times in her episode, how thankful she is for you and all your help and how much it meant to her. Yeah. And um, we need to remember there are families left at home dealing with everything as well. Yeah. There are families who might not have gotten their soldier back or they got them back partially whole whether it's partially physically or mentally or emotionally there are a lot of families right now that are struggling to understand and to kind of 
come to a place of understanding and and comfort with everything that's going on to feel like what they lost wasn't for a waste. Where can we find your books? Um, you can find them on my website, lesliezimmerman.org. I also have on there the option if you, you know, cause not everyone is military, not everyone's deploying. If you would like, you can actually pay for a book for a military family at a oh. discounted rate. It's just my cost of what it will cost me for the book and to ship. And then I send that to a family who's deploying. I the, love that. That's so awesome. President Bush calls me LZ. Hey, LZ. <laughs> so it's the LZ project. Are you still in contact with them? Yeah, I actually went down in at the end of May. So he did like an early birthday ride. His birthday is, I think, June 6th. Went down and, and rode bikes out there and it was so much fun. How cool is that that you can say, yeah, President Bush is my friend. Nothing big, right? <laughs> But the cool thing is, though, is that, like, I mean, it when like, you know, you can be associated with someone, but he really is, like, I'll call him a true friend because he really cares about veterans. He asks about my family and he asks about the other veterans who maybe didn't make it to that ride that time and how they're doing. And he really is a very good leader and true friend. What can we do to support our military and veterans? I think right now is just reaching out. I've had a lot of people, um, former soldiers and just military members reach out to me and say they're struggling right now. Now more than ever, I think just that, give them a call, ask how they're doing, take them out on a walk, anything. And where can we find you on social media or elsewhere online? Well, there's always Google. Google <laughs> and, uh, internet stalk me. That would work. And there's George Bush's book. So yeah. So <laughs> let's see. Instagram author, Leslie Zimmerman. If you want to follow my family adventures, we're the Z pack. Get it? We are the Z pack. And um, my website, of course, has some media links and, and videos that I've done for other organizations on there. So besides your books, what else are you doing to help veterans? Um, I work with Julia, my sister, Julia, who we've spoken a lot about, who I just adore. She lives nearby and we get to spend a lot of time together, which is awesome. She is so sweet. She's an incredible person. I agree. She really is. She'll give you the sure offer back. Expect nothing back. She really is a true saint. So she and I kind of share this role as peer mentor coordinator for the court. When COVID started, I kind of stepped away because I became homeschool mom to three kids in different grades. So she stepped up and has taken over as the lead on that. And I just help her out every now and then when she needs and it works well. And hopefully once my kids get a little older, I'll step back into that role. We organize mentors for these veterans who are going through the criminal justice system. They've come back with, you know, these physical or emotional wounds and they try to deal with it by medicating or anger or, you know, these things that have gotten them in trouble. So we try and get them housing and food and clothing and get them connected with veterans who've either been through court or who have been through war and they've walked their path so they can understand. 
Leslie, what does America mean to you? Oh, this is the question. This is the, this is the question. America to me means living without fear of who you are. That is so good. I've never had anybody say that before. It means waking up and not feeling afraid to go outside or be yourself or wear a certain thing or learn a certain thing or work in a certain job. It's so much freedom that it's not even comprehensible when you compare it to what other people deal with in their societies. You know, we have the freedom to go to school. I have the, the comfort sending my, my kids to school, knowing that they're going to get a good education and that they're safe and protected. And they're gonna come home tonight and I'm gonna put them to bed in their nice warm beds. And there are so many people in our country right now that I feel like take that for granted. The comforts that we have and just being able to go out and ride my bike when I want, where I want, you know, I can't ride it everywhere I want, but just the knowing that we can do those things. And that was my dog. Did you hear? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's life, Leslie. <laughs> just knowing that we can do those things and be safe doing them and have the freedom to do it. Thank you for sharing your American story, Leslie. You're so welcome. I am in awe of Leslie for her courage on telling her difficult story. She is such an example of overcoming difficult obstacles and that there is light at the end of that very dark tunnel. If you want to learn more about Leslie, visit her website at lesliezimmerman.org. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Leaving a review and a rating can help me grow and spread these stories to more people. Please share We the People, Our American Story with family and friends. Let them know about the incredible stories you hear every week. My next guest is Antoinette Martinez de Stapley. Antoinette has a heart-wrenching story that turned into one of service and love. See you on Friday.